Welcome to the sermon podcast of Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Our mission is to respond to God's love by following Jesus and loving God, loving one another, and serving the world. If you're in Knoxville, we'd love for you to join us in person. In the meantime, enjoy this message from God's Word. Well, good morning, friends. It is good to see you. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's been good from my heart to worship with you this morning. I often say I'm so grateful that before I get up and preach, we worship. It's exactly what my heart needs uh, to get ready to, to open up God's word. And I think it's exactly what all of our hearts need as we get ready to hear from the Lord as well. And before we dive into his word, we always bow our heads and pray. Why do we do that? Uh, not because we, you know, we're, we're looking for some way to get the ball rolling, but because we believe that God is pleased to draw near to us in these moments and make his word come alive. See, God's word is perfect and it is always perfect, but our ability to hear it, to receive it, to understand it, that's, that's far from, from perfect. We arrive with all kinds of things on our hearts this morning, with all kinds of uh, sorrows, with all kinds of burdens, some of us with great joys and great excitements, but we're not necessarily in a place where we are ready and eager to hear the word. And so we stop, we pause, and we remind ourselves that the Lord is with us to make his word alive in in these moments. So to that end, let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we do believe that we, that we need to worship, that you've created us to, to worship and that we find the purpose and joy and life when we gather together to praise your name. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would be with us, that its perfect pages would come alive in our hearts, that you would, uh, by the power of your spirit, give us the grace that we need to understand more of your great love for us and more of its implications for our lives. We pray, Lord, that in these moments, the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in the, the second series, uh, second week of a series called Searching Psalms. Uh, during the search for the next senior pastor, the search team selected seven psalms that they were going to pray through one each day of the week. And they invited the whole church, they invited all of you to join them in, in praying through those psalms. Well, then when I and my, my family started to discern a call to Cedar Springs, we started to pray these psalms along with you day by day. And that got me wondering, why did God have so many of us spend so much time in these Psalms? What did he want to work in us that he knew would be important for us as we move into this next season? What, what, is, what, is, God, what is God up to? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to take one of these Psalms, Psalm 123, 46, 62, 130, 131, 133. Take one each week, work our way through it, and see what the Lord has for us. 
Last week, we began this series by looking at the book of Psalms as a whole. And you'll remember, if you were here, that we looked at three numbers, two, six, and one. Two, because there are two themes that work their way throughout the book of Psalms. First, the theme of God's law, God's law that shows us who he is and shows us how we are to live. And then the second theme of God's Messiah, of Jesus, the Savior who would come. Then we looked at the number six because these two themes play out across six different genres or six different types of psalm. Psalms of lament and thanksgiving and confidence and remembrance and wisdom and praise. And seeing these two themes playing out across these six genres, we came to a one sentence summary of the book of Psalms. Why did God give us this book? He gave us this book because the Psalms equip us to experience the full range of human emotion, that we might be faithful to God's law as we take refuge in Jesus, our Messiah. And now this week, we're going to listen to the very first track. Psalm 1, we're going to work our way through it. Uh, Here is the sermon in a sentence. Here is the theme. The theme is going to be that God calls us to be happy in him as we live for him. That's what we're going to see in this text. God calls us to be happy in him as we live for him. Let's look at this passage together, starting verse one. Very first thing I want us to see as we open up this very first psalm is, in fact, the very first word, which is blessed. Blessed. Now, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and the word that is, appears here for, for, for blessed is the Hebrew word that literally means happiness. Happiness. There are other words that can be used for, for blessing, but this is a, a word that, that means happiness. And it's often translated that way throughout our Bibles and is often translated that way in in different translations where we'll read verse one as saying, happy is the man or woman who. The Psalter opens up by talking to us about happiness. Now, what, what does it mean to be happy? To me, this is one of those questions that philosophers and theologians and no doubt too many preachers have just tortured to death and made way more complicated than it needs to be. What is happiness? Ask any child and they know. And intuitively, do we not not know as well? It might be kind of hard to define, but we all know the experience of it. We all know when we're happy and we all know when we're we're unhappy. Happiness, that that experience of of joy, of of pleasure, of delight, the experience, what it's like when we enjoy life. That's that's happiness and, and intuitively we all know what it is. So let me ask you this morning, as we get going, are you are you happy? Are you happy this morning? Are you deeply happy? Are you a consistently happy person? Your your friends, your loved ones, people who know you, would they say that that, that you're a happy person? Because do you know what? The Bible says you can be. The Bible says you can be. And to me, that's no small thing. That's not something I just want to rush, rush past the recognition that, that we can be happy because nobody wants to live an unhappy life. And to whatever degree we're aware of it, this desire to be happy, the pursuit of happiness does fuel and drive so much of what we do. 
It's why we work and create. It's why we date and marry. It's why we, you know, see friends and and raise kids. It's why we play golf and, and drink wine and watch Netflix and pursue our hobbies because we believe that these things will be or bring us happiness. And here's my point. There's nothing wrong with that pursuit. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you didn't come to church this morning to be told the, the will of the Lord is that you should be miserable. I have a word from Jesus. Can I get an amen? Nobody gives me an amen. All <laughs> right. Because that's, that's actually not his will for, and this is good news. It's good news that the Lord's will is not that he would get glory as you are miserable but actually that we would glorify God as we enjoy him, that, that we have been designed and created to be happy. And Christianity isn't cynical about happiness. Dwell on that with me for a second. Christianity isn't cynical about happiness. So often, I'm sure you've heard this, so often there's this temptation to, to step back from what the text is actually saying. You know, at this point in the sermon, I, I should be like five minutes into a description of how, well, it says happy, but there's a difference between happiness and joy. And the Christian version of happiness is going to be nuanced and caveated to death to the point that it really doesn't sound all that much fun. Can we just take, we want to be nuanced, but we also want to take the Bible on its own terms. And the first word of the first verse of this first Sam says that it's possible to be happy. We're not cynical of the pursuit. We may be cynical of how that pursuit plays out (laughs) for lots of people and even ourselves, but we're not cynical about the pursuit itself. We should be happy, and more than that, we can be. How? Back to the text. Happy is the man, still in verse 1, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So having introduced this idea of happiness, the first thing the psalm is going to do is tell us what not to do. If you want to be happy, then this is what you should avoid. Did you notice the progression we get in this verse? Look at it. From walking to standing to sitting. This downward spiral of of sin, sin when we don't live in accordance with God's design for us, where we go from accepting foolish advice to being identified with sinners to actually embodying what is wicked and foolish, a a downward spiral of sin. And the psalm is going to tell us, look at verse 4, that the consequences of this spiral are disastrous. Verse 4, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff, the the fragments of straw and dust that can be easily blown about by the slightest gust of wind. That to live a life outside of God's design for us results in a superficial, weightless, worthless, useless life. And then, Luke, verse 5, it gets worse. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The sin in the end takes us to judgment and takes us to death. The spiral of living outside of God's design doesn't end well in this life or in eternity. 
And we sober ourselves. We listen to these words. As one preacher says, God will deal with us on that day as he has spoken to us on this day. If God says he is going, going, going to bring judgment to the wicked, we can be sure that, that he will. And so what do all wicked people do? We run to Jesus. We take refuge in him. We seek forgiveness in his name that we might escape that judgment. Here's the point, though, for just now. Here's the point for, for this sermon on happiness. Happiness is possible, but sin won't make you happy. Happiness is possible, but sin won't make you happy. Living instead of in God's design, but in, in according to our, our own design or the design of our culture, you know what that promises to make us happy? It holds out a kind of joy, holds out a kind of pleasure, a kind of, of, of profit, but in the end always results in, in sorrow and in pain. Sin overpromises and underdelivers every single time. The Puritans used to illustrate this truth by saying that Satan is like a fisherman who shows the bait but hides the hook. So imagine this fish swimming along happy and unexpecting, sees a tasty morsel dangling in the water and swims over to take a bite. And as soon as he takes a bite of this morsel, he finds his hook that pierces him from the inside out. And so it is with sin. It promises to make us happy, but it always results in pain. It overpromises and it underdelivers every single time. Now, before we move on from this point, I don't want to move on to this point until I've made it a bit more awkward for all of us. Because if you've been around our church for a while, you agree with everything I'm saying. We can be happy in God. Sin doesn't make us happy. Well, if we believe that, why are we still pursuing sin? If we believe that, why are so many of us still so caught up in, in our sins? Why haven't we repented? Why haven't we turned from them? Why haven't we sought a better way? And I think at root, it's so often because we believe deep down that sin will make us happy. For example, anybody who ever looked at pornography did so because they wanted to. Nobody forced them into that. They, they did so because they wanted to, and they wanted to because they, they thought in the moment this would make them happy. And yet, of course, we know it doesn't make you happy. No one looks back on that and thinks, I, I'm making really good decisions right now. I'm really proud of the kind of person that I'm becoming. Elevate it one more step. Anybody who was ever unfaithful to their spouse, anyone who ever cheated on their wife, did so because they wanted to. Because they thought that in the moment it would bring them some kind of relief, some kind of escape, some kind of joy, some kind of new, new life. And yet nobody looks back on that and says, you know, that, that's the kind of man I want my children to become. We could carry it on with things like career success. This drive that we have to, 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 to achieve and, and be important and have a good reputation and get that next promotion. And, and we believe that somehow, some way, someday, getting some kind of level of success will make us happy. But you know, it doesn't. And, and you know, so often people realize it doesn't when, when they actually get there. They spend their whole lives in pursuit 
of being CEO and they get there and they realize, you know what, it's, it's all right. But it doesn't give me what I thought. Materialism, the same way. So many of us spending so much of our time looking for that next possession, looking for that kind of bank balance to feel that we have some kind of, some kind of safety, some kind of security, some kind of joy, and it just it doesn't work. Because how much, money, how much money do you need in your 401k emotionally to feel good? Just a little bit more. That's how much. No matter how much you have, you need just a little bit more. We pursue these things because we think they'll make us happy, even though at bottom, we know that they won't. So test ourselves. Test yourself, Christian. How is Satan showing you the bait and hiding the hook? Where are you buying into this pursuit of happiness? Okay, summary so far. Still in verse one. Happiness is possible. Sin doesn't make you happy. Okay, so what do we do? What will make us happy? Verse two. Let's look at verse two together. Happy is the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Let's read that again. Slow down a little bit with me. Happiness is possible. Not by living as we see fit. Happiness is found when we find delight in the law of the Lord and when we meditate on his law day and night. Now, last week, we said that, that God's law, uh, it isn't just, don't think of God's law as a long list of rules and regulations like the IRS tax code that's at best boring, at worst limiting and, and oppressive. That's not what the law of God is. Instead, we said the law of God does two things. Do you remember? At least two things. First of all, God's law shows us what God is like. It gives us a picture of him, a description of, of, of him. Secondly, we said, not only does the law show us what God is like, but it also shows us how to live. If we're to live life in God's image, then, then live it this way. Living life according to his law will enable you to, to live out the image of God, will enable you to live a life that you'll become like God. Live the life that he has designed for you to live. And this framework is helpful for us when it comes to understanding this verse. Because how does, how does the law make you happy? Well, in these two ways. First of all, the law makes us happy because it brings us close to God. It brings us close to God who is himself the source of all joy, all pleasure, all happiness. It gives us a picture of him, a description of of him. It tells us about his character. It tells us about his attributes. It shows us who he is and what he's like. And so we delight in the word, not because we worship the Bible, but because we worship the God of the Bible. That's really, that is a distinction with a difference. And we remember, especially in a church like ours that has a great noble heritage of prioritizing the word of God. That we don't prioritize the word of God because we worship the Bible, but because we worship the God of the Bible. When we come to the Bible, the reason that we celebrate is because we're coming to God. We're coming to him and its pages show us what he's like. So one pastor, I think it originally originated with Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
he says, um, he describes the Bible by saying, uh, it's like a man who is, who is traveling. He's traveling and he's far from his, his wife. Maybe he's deployed or on some, some distant trip. But in his pocket, he has a photograph of her. A photograph of his bride, a photograph of the one he loves. And so on his travels, he takes it out. And he looks at it and he lingers over it and it touches his heart and he might even kiss it. He wouldn't part with it for the world for her sake. It keeps her close to him in his thoughts and in his heart. The point isn't the photograph. The point is the one whom the photograph reveals. And so it is with the word of God. So it is with the law of God. The point isn't the word. The point isn't the law. The point is the God that this photograph reveals. A God who is merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who has set his love upon us in the gospel, that Jesus has come and has lived and has died and has risen and ascended to save us from the shipwreck we make of our lives and to one day save us even from this present evil age. So that we are people who have all broken God's law and have all sought to make, allow sin to make us happy can come to Jesus, the one who never did those things. And find forgiveness full and free. And now this God invites us to come and abide in him. And in his word, we find that place. That place where we rest in him. Dwell in him. Flee from guilt and shame, but know that we are loved. Find intimacy and hope. Delighting in the law makes us happy because it brings us close to God. Step one in happiness is to come to God through the gospel. The second reason, though, and this was counterintuitive to me as I studied, the second reason the law makes us happy is because meditating on the law shows us how to live. Remember these two sides? It shows us God, but it also shows us how to live. And because it shows us how to live, the law will make us happy. Because here's the thing. God has designed for us to be happy in him as we live for him. God has designed and, and calls us and invites us to be happy in him as we live for him. See, sometimes when we think about finding our delight in the Lord, we maybe think of some sort of mystical spiritual experience where you're sitting by yourself and maybe you're out in the woods and the Lord appears and now your soul rejoices. Now listen, that kind of thing happens the ordinary way in which we enjoy the Lord is, is, is by living with the Lord. So let me give you an illustration of this through, through marriage. You know, in marriage, there are times where you sit across the table and look at each other and just experience joy. Now, married people, how often does that happen <laughs> in like a normal week for you? Okay. Rosie, I'm having this really insecure moment where maybe it's just you and I, right? Maybe everyone else is like, oh yeah, like every Tuesday, five o'clock, that happens, right? That's, that, those moments happen and those moments are beautiful, but that's not normally where joy and intimacy are found in marriage. You know, the joy of marriage, the intimacy of marriage isn't experienced as you sit across the table from each other, but as you live life together, 
as you wake up in the morning and have that early hug, as you make coffee and brush your teeth, as you find your keys and support each other throughout the day by sending that funny text, as you come home and take a walk together or cook dinner together or watch Netflix together or make love together, as you do things together, as you live life together, that's where the joy and intimacy of a marriage is found. And that's actually what makes those moments when you sit across the table so powerful. Because you're sitting across the table and you're looking into the eyes of one who you've shared so much life with. Well, so it is in our spiritual life. So it is in our spiritual walk. The happiness and intimacy with God isn't just found in some mystical moment that's hard to attain, but in the adventure of actually living life with him. Saved by grace, we get up in the morning and we think, I wonder what God has planned for today. I wonder what he's up to. I wonder who does he have for me to encourage today? Who does he have for me to to serve today? How does he want me to make a difference on, you know, in this, this life that he's given me today? And then I'm going to step into the day following him as I go. This is why we meditate on the law day and night. It means, uh, yes, the start and the end, but it assumes, therefore, everything in between because we're always wondering, how would God have me be in this moment? How would God have me grow in this moment? How would God have me respond in this moment? You see the fruit of such a life in verse 3? Doing this, delighting in God, living life with him, him, verse 3, makes you like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Isn't that an interesting word? He prospers. There is a kind of prosperity gospel that has absolutely nothing to do with the shallow, superficial, unbiblical, lame health and wealth prosperity gospel. And it has nothing to do with that because it's something so much better. Promising not health and wealth, but a flourishing life. Look at the text. Being happy in God and and, and in living life with him produces fruit in our lives. We're connected to God himself, the, the source of life. And because our roots go deep down into his gospel grace for us, we start to produce a different kind of fruit. People of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Our lives look different because of our connection to him. And not just fruit, but also flourishing. In all that he does, he prospers. See, we want to stay away from the, you know, ridiculousness of the health and wealth gospel, but not step back from the fact that that following God's ways, living in accordance with God's design does result in, in a better life for us. If you seek to follow God's ways in your marriage, you will be a better husband. If you seek to follow God's ways in your parenting, you, you, you will be a better parent. If you seek to love your neighbor as God calls you to love your neighbor, you will be a better neighbor. In all that you do, these things will prosper. You will, you will flourish because you're living as God has designed. And so here's my question. 
Have you considered this morning that active obedience to God is the thing that will make you happy? That, yes, you find joy in him, but you find that joy as you live for him. That grace results in a changed life. And when we get that fullness of life, we have the kind of story that God is calling us to. Because I'm concerned about Christianity in the West in general and about evangelicalism in America in particular. Because everywhere we look, we see bored Christians. Bored Christians who have fallen into a kind of nominalism. Nominal Christianity is that kind of Christianity whereby you say you believe and you maybe even do believe the things that we're talking about today, but it doesn't really make a difference to the life that you lead. And so many of us get, get caught up in that kind of, kind of boredom. Like we know God is great and we believe it, but we're not actually that moved by it. And we know he's called us to live a certain way and we're not necessarily living wild, crazy lives, but we're not really seeking to follow him either. And we know that his word is meant to bring us to light, but like, can we be honest? We won't do a show of hands, but if we did, um, if I asked who hasn't opened their Bible since the last time they were in church, you know, you wouldn't be the only one who raised your hand. We get caught up in this kind of Christian nominalism whereby we live bored Christian lives. And I think the root of so much of that is that we haven't taken seriously the command of God to obey him and find our joy in him. Because listen, see when you read the Bible, the kind of life that we're called to is anything but boring. The kind of risks that we're meant to take, the kind of sacrifices we're meant, we're meant to make, the way that we are to be formed both in our inner lives and then in the lives that we lead with our families in this city, with our world, it's anything but boring. Um, what was it like? Do you remember the last time you shared the gospel with someone? And if you're sitting there thinking, I've never done that, that's, that's okay, right? We're all growing. But that last time you shared the gospel with someone, or that last time you invited them to church, how did you feel as you did that? I guarantee you it wasn't bored. It might have been nervous. It might have been terrified. It might have been joyful or, or, or exuberant. I don't know, but I know whatever it was, it wasn't bored. The last time you gave sacrificially to, to God's global mission, how did you feel? It was anything but bored. When we take the commands of God seriously, we actually try and live the new life he calls us to, we find ourselves anything but bored. If we are, if we're bored, if we're distracted, if we're deceived, I'm not saying uh, your salvation is at stake, but your happiness in God certainly is. Why? Because he has called us to be happy in him as we live for him. That's the summary of this text. He's calling us to be happy in him as we live for him. Happiness is possible, not in sin, but in a life lived for him. Closing question. What do you need to do to be happy this week? What do you need to do to be happy, happy this week? Ask, ask, on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you? If it's a six, what would make it a seven? If it's a one, what would make it a two? Is there some sin that you need to turn away from? Is there something that you've been looking to for, for joy and you recognize in these moments you need to turn away from it? 
Is it meditation on, on his word? Is it spending time with him day by day? If you're new to this whole spending time in the Bible thing, this series is a great time to start because join with us in, in, in reading through these Psalms day by day. Sunday, Psalm 1, Monday, 23, 46, 62, 130, 131, 133, as you work your way throughout, throughout the week. Make this series the time that you start reading God's word day by day. If it's not turning from sin, if it's not new meditation, is, is there some aspect of obedience that you know you've not, you've not lent into today? Ask yourself that question. What is it that you need to do to be happier in God this week? Happiness is possible. God calls us to be happy in him as we live for him. Let's pray together. Father, I'm, I'm grateful for this time in your word and grateful for the fact that your word is at times really nuanced and then at other times really clear and that you are unapologetic about the fact that you have created us with the capacity for happiness and joy and that that capacity can be fulfilled and is fulfilled when we find happiness in you as we live for you. Lord, would you, uh, by the power of your spirit, land just one or two things on each of our hearts that we might seek that happiness this week as, as it's found in you and you alone. Because we want to be a happy people, uh, both for our sake and indeed for our witness to, to your world. So these, these things we pray in the perfect and happy name of Jesus. Amen.